You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning methods for generating and reasoning with natural language. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Burr Settles, who leads the research group at Duolingo, a language learning website and mobile app whose mission is to make language education free and accessible to everyone. Burr's PhD thesis is titled Curious Machines, Active Learning with Structured Instances, which he completed in 2008 at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We talk about his work in the thesis on active learning, in which a learning algorithm can interactively query an information source to label new data points, including a key method called information density querying and connections with human learning. Then we chart the path to Burr's role at Duolingo, where he leads the research group, and we talk about machine learning for education and language learning, including content, assessment, and the exciting possibilities opened by recent advancements. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Thesis Review. To support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash thesis review, or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Burr Settles with Curious Machines, Active Learning with Structured Instances on the Thesis Review. Although we'll start with with talking about your PhD days and your thesis, maybe as a preview for things that you work on now related to learning languages, we could start with a, a fun question. What do you think is the most difficult part of learning a new language? Um, yeah, well, I think the most difficult part of learning a language is probably also it's similar to the most difficult part of getting in shape or the most difficult part of, uh, you know, developing any sort of habit is just staying motivated. Um, so, I mean, there are, you know, fundamental psychological aspects that make learning a language a hard but staying yeah staying motivated it's a it's a long and uh continuous process a lot of things keep building uh on on the things that you've learned before so uh that's why our strategy at duolingo has been to you know make it fun and turn it into kind of a game uh to keep people motivated yeah i've i've tried to learn a couple languages and and I find like w- with whatever resource I pick up, there's always like an initial surge and it feels like I'm just going to keep doing this forever and it- it's always going to be fun. And then like one month or two months later, you realize like how long term of a, a thing it has to be. Yeah. And I think another aspect in, in some of the the AI work that we've been doing at Duolingo is trying to quickly figure out where you're at. You know, are, are you totally new to learning this language? Uh, is it related to your mother tongue? Are you a heritage speaker? Or d- did you take four years of high school French before starting the, f- the French course on Duolingo? And all of those things will have different implications for where you're at. Uh, so if we can pick up on that and then fine tune and tailor the learning experience just for you, you'll also stay more motivated because things won't be too easy or too hard. They'll be kind of just right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there does seem to be another aspect of it, like balancing the difficulty. It's like sometimes the most difficult things probably lead to the most progress. That's also the hardest to, 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 to get myself motivated for after like a full day of work or something. So right, that seems like a trade-off as well. Okay, well, yeah, maybe that's a bit of a, a preview for some things that we'll talk about later. But let's go all the way back to even before your PhD. So what kind of like what was your background in and uh, what were kind of the steps leading up to you deciding to do a PhD? Um, 
Well, I I actually never intended to go to grad school. I, I went to a small liberal arts school in Indiana called DePauw, uh, with a W, not with an L, DePauw. And uh, originally I was a math and studio art double major. And then I took my first computer science classes there. Uh, this is what would have been the mid 90s. And um, kind of fell in love with that, switched to uh, switched to a computer science studio art double major. Um, I kind of found computer science to be like a mathematical art form. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what I, how I fell in love with it. My uh, undergrad advisor encouraged me to apply for grad school. I graduated about the time during the dot-com bust, so that turned out to be a good idea. And went to the University of Wisconsin. Uh, originally wanted to study, you know, uh, more hardware uh, systems, distributed computing and stuff, and then took a machine learning class, fell in love with that, uh, and started doing research with a uh, Mark Craven, who was a faculty member. He was a computer scientist, but he was actually in the biostatistics department and uh, did a lot of work on information extraction in biomedical literature. So that's how I first kind of got started into natural language processing and machine learning. Mm-hmm. I see. Did the uh, did the interest in the studio art uh, kind of stay with you at all, or um, not? Not really. I'm also a musician, so my artistic bug has uh, veered more in that direction. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, I I also married a studio artist uh, in grad school, so I kind of live my my uh, my visual art life vicariously through her. <laughs> mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. So then, um, yeah. So then, biomedical text maybe you were looking through, and then how did that day to day? Were you working on more like machine learning type things initially, or was it actually like understanding the biomedical side of things? Well, the the ultimate goal. Uh, it back the, so this was the early 2000s and at that time there were fewer efforts to like when you publish a paper with a new finding about like this particular uh gene regulates this other gene or something uh you you it, it only appeared in the literature there weren't these large structured databases with providence information so the idea was can we build information extraction systems to kind of go through the 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 back catalog, so to speak, of all of biochemistry and sort of build these gene regulatory networks. And then we could do mining on top of that to do drug discovery, you know, like this drug um, we know treats this disease and it has these binding sites. uh, And by the way, these binding sites are also implicated in other diseases. So maybe this drug or variants of it could be useful for those other diseases. So that was the original motivation. and so, and and it was kind of in the early days of conditional random fields as well. So I was one of the first people to apply CRFs to the biomedical named entity recognition problem. Mm-hmm. And, but there wasn't a whole lot of data or the data, I mean, there were a few benchmark data sets, but maybe the definitions of the classes that you cared about were different than, you know, the the medical collaborators that we had uh, than the ones that they were interested in. So we, if we wanted to annotate our own data sets, that was a slow and expensive process because you needed humans who had PhD level knowledge of molecular biology and also had enough kind of linguistics uh, intuitions and computer familiarity to do this annotation task. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's ultimately what got me interested in active learning because this was a, uh, an expensive human resource problem. Uh, so how can we make best use of human resources to teach machines how to automate this problem? Yeah, I see. So yeah, so then active learning really ended up being the subject of your PhD thesis then. Right, yeah. I, I, I pivoted. Originally, I was doing kind of biomedical text processing as my main thesis topic, and then pivoted more into active learning uh, toward the end. Yeah. So maybe like since we'll probably be discussing it a lot, like 
Could you give just a brief background on what is active learning? Sure. So most machine learning applications that people are familiar with today, I would characterize as passive learning uh, or supervised learning where you have a data set. There's some universe that generates the data magically for you, or you've done an annotation study or something. Um, And then you create the data, and then you try a bunch of different models to see what works best on that. Uh, on the data. In active learning, the model itself is an active participant in uh, labeling its own data. So humans, in, an, in a typical NLP scenario like I was working in, uh, humans might annotate a small amount of data, but there's a, a gigantic you know, database of unlabeled data. So you annotate a small random sample of it, uh, and then train the machine learning model on that and have it quickly evaluate the entire rest of the corpus, the unlabeled corpus. And then it can pick out, oh, well, here are some passages that I'm confused about. Uh, Can you label these for me? And then it becomes like this dialogue back and forth. Um, So in formal parlance, we call the human annotator, in this case, the oracle. And the um, the the instances or questions that get asked back are queries. Um, so the goal then isn't to just have high performance, but it's also to kind of find the smallest set of the smallest low lowest cost set of data to train your model with. Right, exactly. So there's a learning curve. Like normally in an active learning paper, what you would see in the results section is a, a plot of a learning a set of learning curves where if you randomly sample the data, uh, you, you know, import performance improves at a certain rate. But if you're actively querying data, um, then you, you should improve much faster. Um, that's the basic idea. Turns out it's not always the case in practice. <laughs> and so at the time, uh, so your PhD thesis was in 2008. So going back to then, everyone was using, uh, you know, billion parameter transformers back then, right? Uh, Yeah, that's what I remember. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, but I mean, yeah, I I guess the reason I'm, (laughs) the reason I'm asking is so in this active learning setup uh, for the models that you were using at the time, um, were they able to be trained on like a small enough amount of data that this really made a, a, a difference like if you got an active learning algorithm for instance where you only had to label like a hundred instances would that then kind of let you train your model or what was the kind of scale that things were operating at well i think it's even more nuanced than that so the the typical scale of machine learning in the literature anyway at that time was on the order of thousands or tens of thousands and if you're lucky maybe hundreds of thousands of of uh training examples Um, And of course, in active learning, in a real active learning scenario, you're starting with like maybe 50 to 100 annotated instances and kind of bootstrapping from there. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, although you might have unlabeled, like like you might have hundreds or millions of of unlabeled examples available. Um, But one of the things... At the time I started doing active learning research, most of the published papers ran simulation studies. So you had a corpus of maybe you know fifty thousand annotated instances, and you just pretended that they were not annotated, and you also pretended that the cost of annotating this particular instance was the same as annotating this other particular instance. Uh, mm-hmm. And when in practice, you know. Th- this other one might be more nuanced or, or confusing or something for a human annotator. Um, and so I started doing some some of the first user studies. There were a few other people, um, Kevin Small, Robbie Hartel, Alexis Palmer, uh, and uh, Katrin Tomanek are a few names that come to mind of people about the same time and who were also doing user studies of active learning. Um, interestingly, all of us were also working either in biomedical natural language processing or, uh, like native heritage speaker, uh, language documentation. So dying, mm. documenting dying languages, both cases where 
uh, it's hard to get a hold of appropriate, you know, annotators. Mm-hmm. So what we often found in these user studies were that the most informative instances to the machine, presumably because they were the most confusing, you know, they were most they were closest to the decision boundary or. Uh, you know, there was most disagreement in an ensemble or something like that, which are some of the different heuristics for doing active learning. Uh, they were also the most, they were closest to the human decision boundary as well, or, you know, the most confusing mm-hmm. for for humans. So they also took longer to annotate. So it ended up in, in a lot of cases being a net wash um, in practice if, if you're, if you're X- access variable is not number of annotated instances, but rather like wall clock time um, mm. in, in these user studies. I see. That's interesting. So the active learning algorithm might actually be finding the ones that are most expensive to annotate if you don't incorporate right. the cost. Right. It might be picking yeah. outliers, for example, or uh, other things which make it hard for humans to to annotate. So we, we started looking into other uh, approaches like doing some density weighting, doing some pre-clustering on the unlabeled instances, and then trying to choose things that are both informative and representative of um, of the data. And then also pivoting into other kinds of queries rather than just annotating an instance. Let's say you're doing text classification. Um, mm-hmm. Traditionally, you would uh, a query would be, here's a document, tell me the label. Um, but an alternative to that might be here's a document um, and here are a bunch of words that I think are associated with this label. Uh, maybe you can label these words for me uh, and you get more bang for your buck, you know, and, and crafting the hypothesis by expanding that kind of language. So this is more knowledge-based um, active learning with side information. Um, so I did some work in that, both by myself and in collaboration with Greg Druck from UMass Amherst. Uh, and then there's also some other work in multi-instance active learning, which mm-hmm. is a whole other rabbit trail. I don't know if you want to go down, but um, but it was another way of expanding the language, the types of things that, thing, um, that can be queried. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, maybe in terms of like, not even the, the technical content, but more of like the backstory or also the technical content. Like one of the main methods, I think you mentioned it, were these information density querying methods. And it seems like this was a big part of the thesis. So is there like an interesting backstory to tell about how this ended up being something that you developed and focused on for a while? Yeah, it's kind of exactly what I just alluded to a minute ago. Um, The basic idea of information density is, is... places where there's high information content, so high entropy. Uh, One of the heuristics um, for active learning is uncertainty sampling. So you pick something that's closest to the decision boundary, or if there are three or more classes, something with the highest uh, output entropy in the model's kind of prediction distribution of labels. So that's high information, uh, but again, the highest information might be some outlier because it's nowhere near anything you've seen before. So, you know, you're just like predicting, you know, 25%, 25%, 25%, 25% for like a a four class problem. Um, Mm -hmm. So the idea was then to weight the information by how representative it is either of the entire distribution or of like clusters um, of the unlabeled distribution. And so you could quickly... Uh, you could do some clustering and pre-compute, you know, the 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 density parameter for all of the unlabeled instances, uh, and then very quickly just multiply that by the um, the updated information term as you do. Um, like if you started out labeling fifty instances, then the machine, you know, computes the entropy over a million instances, multiplies that by the pre-computed densities. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, you can label like five more instances or, or something, and then it can quickly update its hypothesis and, and, and quickly, you know, O of N run through the whole uh, database again. And that, that uh, seemed to help a lot in terms of um, finding instances that were useful for the model and were not outrageous for humans to annotate as well. Mm-hmm. I see. 
And like, if, if we think about nowadays, um, now maybe the models have changed and we have things that do this like large scale unsupervised or self-supervised pre-training. And then we also have this idea of like few shot learning. So in this like new setting that we're in, do you think that active learning has become more relevant or less relevant? Yeah, just do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I'm not as active and in the middle of the active learning uh, world as I was a decade ago. But I mean, the fact that honestly, citations to my papers, there was an inflection point and they're they're still going up. Uh, presumably, people are still doing work on this. I think just from my personal perspective that where it can help a lot is in recent trends in fairness and bias uh, and uh, and maybe even understanding and um, you know interpretation of the models. So the reason I say this is after I finished my PhD, I went to Carnegie Mellon and started working on this Read the Web project with Tom Mitchell. And one of the things that I did was, so, so Read the Web, we had this system called NEL for Never Ending Language Learner. And the idea was it would crawl the internet. It was a large scale information extraction system. Um, it would crawl the internet and sort of learn how to read in a self-supervised way. Um, I, I, I say learn how to read in quotes, uh, air quotes. And, uh, but, it, but it was something where we basically defined a, some categories and gave some seed examples and just let it rip, let it run. Uh, and then it, it, it did a pretty good job of like uh, teaching itself things because there were different sub-models that were conditionally independent of each other and they made independent decisions. And if they agreed, then it would uh, decide that you know, this prediction was true, add it to its training set, so to speak, and, and bootstrap from there. Well, one of the things I did early on was create an active learning loop in it. So where if it, if it had, if, if it found some conflicting evidence, you know, here's a thing I think belongs to this category, but one of the other sub sub modules disagrees, you know, it would bubble that up and then ask a human. Um, mm -hmm. It wouldn't ask a human about everything piece of evidence that it found. But if there was enough like strength or, or, or internal turmoil conflict, uh, then it would bubble up and ask. One of the first questions it asked was whether or not Sarah Palin was female. And when you dig under the hood, it's because the orthography classifier was like, yep, this is def Sarah is definitely a female name. Uh, but the context classifier was saying, oh, but Sarah Palin's only mentioned in masculine contexts. Uh, because this this would have been 2009 right after the 2008 election and you know there had never been a serious contender up to that point uh, a female vice president candidate um so you know obviously we labeled that as female and then decided to start looking for other female politicians uh and add those to the seed examples um and that so that's one example i think of where Active learning methods can be useful for correcting model biases, even in today's large, um, large scale, billion parameter, uh, large language models. When we're fine tuning those, for example, I think active learning can be part of the loop um, in that fine tuning. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And then another thing I want to ask about is... Um, it seems like in, in some of the experiments, you kind of have a, a fixed data set, but there's some, there seems to be something natural about active learning in a kind of streaming setup where you're getting some streaming data and you're deciding on the fly, okay, am I going to annotate this one or am I just going to keep it and, and do some self-supervised learning on it or even discard it? Um, just, yeah. What are your thoughts on like this streaming setup versus say like choosing something out of a fixed data set? Are they actually the same thing or? Um, they're, they're actually not the same thing. And in fact, most of the theoretical work like pack bounds and stuff on active learning have been in that streaming scenario because it's been easier to analyze. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually three different scenarios for active learning. So, so far I've mostly talked about what's called pool-based active learning. Uh, 
because that's that's what I did most of my work in, and it's the most natural in a, a lot of NLP settings. There's also mm -hmm. synthesis querying, where the entire instant space, you know, is is fair game and the model can actually synthesize an arbitrary point in the input space um mm. that's pretty rare because if if we're if we care about real world problems there's a real world <laughs> input data distribution uh and there's even some early work using neural networks where they tried the synthesis approach for like handwritten character um classification and it failed miserably because it would just generate characters that were like runes. You know, it didn't. They didn't rec <laughs> resemble real, uh, uh, you know, uh, Arabic digits. So, mm -hmm. uh, and then there's the stream-based scenario, um, which, which is useful in a lot of different applications. And um, a simple approach would be to set some thresholds where if it's above a certain threshold of confidence, label it. If it's below a certain threshold, discard it. And if it's in between, query it. Um, I, I haven't done too much work in that area, uh, but it, it's certainly something. It's Actually, it's kind of what we did with Nell. Um, uh, you know, if, if all the subsystems agreed, label it. If there was disagreement within a certain range then query it and if it was below if if nothing thought it belonged to this category or class then just throw it away and then before you had mentioned this connection or like the similarity with potentially what humans were doing did, like did you actually do like look into this like scientifically whether there's some the insights you get from machine learning based active learning could line up with what humans are possibly doing uh yeah i I, it's funny, as I did more and more active learning research uh, and, and did more and more of these user studies, which not too many people were doing at the time, building user interfaces, I kind of just got more and more interested in the human side of that equation, uh, like the human-computer interaction issues. Um, and then I, I happened to meet some cognitive psychologists at NYU, um, Doug Marcant and Todd Garekis, uh, who were interested in active learning, studying active learning in humans, you know, how information seeking behavior in humans. So we decided to do a collaboration um, where we applied some common active learning and machine learning heuristics to try to predict human behavior in uh, in, in a made-up sort of laboratory information-seeking task. And it's been a while since I've looked at the paper. I mean, it, we did this work eight years ago now. Um, so I forget a lot of the details. But yeah, so what we looked at um, in this case was if there are three classes... Um, well, let me back up. If there's, if there's only two classes, if there's positive and negative... Uh, then the optimal active learning algorithm is essentially a binary search. You know, you, you pick something in the, in the, it, well, sorry, if there's, if there are two classes and there is one dimension, right, then a binary search is the optimal active learning algorithm. Uncertainty sampling is one way you can think of as generalizing that to two or more input dimensions, uh, but still only two classes. So you train, let's say, a logistic regression and you want to query the instance that's closest to the decision boundary. Mm -hmm. um, and however, if there are three or more classes, um, there things become a little more nuanced, right? So you could do the entropy, the output entropy over those three classes, or you could take the two most probable classes and look at the margin between them you know, the difference between the, their posteriors. Those are two different heuristics that you could you could choose. And so what we were interested in was, okay, when humans are confronted with a simple input space and three possible classes, um, which machine learning heuristic best characterizes their behavior? Um, mm -hmm. and, and alternatively, 
humans might actually go the other extreme too of picking the class that they're most certain in, you know, and keep querying like what they're already confident in rather than trying to push the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've, what we found was there are different, um, different humans kind of fit different profiles. Some of them preferred an entropy-based approach. Some of them preferred a most certain approach. And, but the majority of them favored uh, this label margin approach. So they, they kind of ruled out their least confident class and were trying to choose the most information providing uh, example on the boundary between their two strongest hypotheses. And then we also found that the people who chose that strategy generally performed best at the task that they were trying to learn mm. uh, in the in the laboratory setting. And this kind of makes sense. If you go more than three classes, let's say there's 100 possible classes, uh, you're, you're not mentally going to scan through your, <laughs> your posterior for all 100 classes. You're probably just going to pick you know, the, the top two or three things that you hypothesize and then try to test those hypotheses. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it starts to feel like there's some correspondence between this and education. Like, like when you said the human would pick what they're most familiar with, that starts to sound like if you're trying to learn a language or trying to learn math or something, you kind of drift towards something that's maybe more familiar because it's less challenging and you have to have someone else like intervene and say, no, this is what you really should be looking at. I I do think it's related. And in fact, you know, around the time that I started that collaboration with NYU was about the time my postdoc at CMU was ending. And I decided to, to kind of jump out of academia and join Duolingo, uh, kind of in the early days. Because like, as I said, I was, I had been doing a lot of research on how to best use human resources to teach machine things, machines things. Uh, and then I just got more and more interested in flipping that around and how do we, how do we best use machine resources to teach people things? And Mm -hmm. since I love learning languages and I've been doing natural language processing, uh, jumping to Duolingo was just a real natural move. Uh, and I was already in Pittsburgh, which is where we're headquartered. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been doing ever since. So like in terms of methodology, maybe did you kind of move on from just active learning and it became more about like, okay, we have these, we have these like concrete problems we need to solve. And then whatever methodology I end up using or researching is more related to that? Or Yes and no. And I've kind of always been a, you know, I'm interested in this problem. And so what are the best tools for solving that problem? I haven't been a very method focused person. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, for most of my career, I've been been more focused on the problem or the application than the method. But my background in active learning equipped equipped us really well for a lot of the problems uh, that we've been working on at Duolingo. So for example, when I first joined back in 2013, you, at the beginning of the podcast, we talked about, you know, what's your level when you start Duolingo? Like, do you have any, are you a heritage speaker? Did you take four years of high school uh, French or whatever? Or are you just totally a beginner? Um, None of that mattered. You still had to start with lesson one of basics one of the course at the time that I joined Duolingo. and so we hypothesized that we were losing a lot of users who already had a background in the language and just got frustrated and bored because they had to start at the basics. So I created a computer adaptive placement test. Um, the goal was to have something that takes less than five minutes uh, and it adaptive, adaptively sort of zeroes in on, um, for any of the listeners who haven't used Duolingo, the the lessons are organized into skills that are kind of in a a linear sequence almost. And so you have to finish certain skills to unlock the next set of skills. So there's a progression through it. And so the goal was to, uh, after taking this placement test, we would unlock the curriculum to the point where you belonged um, rather than having to start at the very beginning. And it's really analogous to active learning where in 
in the typical machine learning mindset of active learning, the model, what it's trying to learn is a hypothesis that will accurately predict you know the classes for these things well the classes are right and wrong and what it's trying to predict is the composition of this user and this exercise um so your input instances are this user and this particular uh, challenge that you have to do and i'm are we going to classify it as right or wrong so you you adaptively move through the space throughout the whole curriculum and and gradually try to zero in on like this these are the questions that are not too easy not too hard but right at their level and we'll unlock the tree up to that point in practice we actually unlock the tree i think up to where we predict you'll get 80 percent of the things correct at that particular level uh so that it's mm -hmm. not too hard but um that was one of my early contributions uh that whole thing then developed into the Duolingo English test, which is a computer adaptive high stakes English proficiency assessment um, that's entirely online. And um, and then more recently, we've developed a system called BirdBrain, which uses kind of a similar approach uh, to personalize the lessons. So when you go and do a lesson, there are maybe a hundred or a thousand possible exercises we could cram into that five minute chunk of time. Uh, and we use BirdBrain to adaptively, you know, give you the ones that are in your quote zone of proximal development. That's a educational psychology term, but uh, things that are basically not too easy, not too hard, but you know, just right for you. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I had two questions about that. One is like, do you have any sense of what the model is learning to key in on when it's deciding whether something is easier or hard? Like, have you able to interpret what the models found to distinguish something that's easy versus hard? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, so the first models that we worked with were basically giant lo logistic regressions. They were linear models where you've got like an indicator variable for the user ID and then a bunch of features of the the exercise. Um, and in the simplest case, it's like just an exercise ID. <laughs> uh, and then you can think of the weights that fall out of that as if, if the weights are positive, then this user, if the user weight is positive, then it indicates that they're better than average. Uh, and if it's negative, they're, they're lower than average. And if the item ID is positive, that means it's easier than average. And if it's negative, then it means it's harder than average. Mm-hmm. Well, you can then kind of factorize the the item out by various features of it, like the number of words or the number of nouns or the number of prepositions uh, or these particular dependency arcs that belong to it and and so on and so forth. Uh, and there are some interesting insights uh, there in terms of like certain parts of speech might be easier or harder for different people to learn based on their, L1 language background. So determiners are harder for Russian speakers to learn. English determiners are harder for Russian speakers to learn than Spanish speakers because determiners exist in Spanish and they don't really exist in Russian. Um, so things like that, that can be useful. Uh, but for the most part, most of what we've operationalized have been these, you know, simpler linear models that you can't make inferences much stronger than that. Recently, we have uh, productionized uh, an LSTM because we, we actually found that to work better than transformers. At least it was easier to tune it to something that worked well, um, where we've got you know multiple dimensions now rather than just this one dimension. Mm -hmm. And we have some evidence that s some of the dimensions start to capture things like uh, plurality or the past tense or subject noun agreement or things like that. And so this is really exciting for us because now we can not only turn a dial of, you know, for this particular user, we want to give you things that are easier or harder. On the one hand, it's great because the model is more accurate, but it also helps us build a more nuanced profile of this learner. This learner actually knows past tense pretty well, 
but they're struggling with uh, gender agreements between nouns and ad- adjectives, for example. Um, and so we can give them more exercises to train them up on those um, those distinctions, whereas this other learner has the opposite problem. Uh, so we can focus their exercises more on past tense or something like that. Um, and that we can also use that to help drive the content that we create, you know, the new lessons that we add to the curriculum and so on and so forth. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the other thing was like in terms of evaluation, like what, what the goal of the machine learning system is, is it hard to capture kind of like what is the, tr- the true objective that you should be optimizing for? It seems like It seems like this might be a difference between like you know, here's a fixed benchmark, here's the data set, and here's how you evaluate it. And the difference between that and we have a real system and we want to optimize, you know, something fuzzy related to users, and then we have to translate that into a machine learning problem. Does this kind of become an issue? Yeah, absolutely. And But I argue this is an issue for any real world applied machine learning like there you have your real objective or, or any I mean, people throw the term human-centered ai around a lot and it means different things to different people but in at least in a duolingo context what we care about is that people stay engaged and learn better all right measuring learning is like very different than measuring how much money you're making or how many daily active users you have. Like those are very concrete uh, objective metrics that are is super cheap to get, you know, automatically. Um, and, and interestingly at Duolingo, we've put a little bit, but not a whole lot of our AI muscle behind, you know, optimizing those things, mostly because there's still so much low hanging fruit using traditional uh, product development and, and software engineering techniques. So most of our AI muscle has been focused on this improving learning, but that's also the hardest and fuzziest thing to like measure. Like, sure, you can give people standardized tests, but those are slow and expensive and unreliable and blah, blah, blah. Um, so we use a variety of different metrics. Uh, we have evaluation metrics for the ML systems that we build. And then we have what I call success metrics for the things that we then A-B test in production. And you hope they're related, but they they don't necessarily need to be um, because you might not actually be able to empirically measure um, your success metrics in an R&D you know, environment where you're trying out the different models or different feature engineering uh, approaches. Mm-hmm. So we look, for example, BirdBrain is, is the name for uh, this personalization system that I mentioned. Um, and we look at, you know, various metrics like area under the ROC curve. Uh, and accuracy is not that useful because 80 to 90% of, of things are correct. But, uh, you know, precision and recall and things like that. But a- AUC is the, the most useful one to us. Um, mm-hmm. But when we are then running an A-B test in production, we look at very different things like the, t- the total time spent learning for a user that has this version of BirdBrain versus another version. Um, did they use spend more time in the app? Also, the content of what they saw, did they, uh, did, was it harder? You know, when, as we turn that dial to make it you know, just right, are we able to increase both the difficulty of what they're seeing and the engagement metrics, like how many sessions are they quitting? Hopefully, well, that that goes down because we're giving them things that are more appropriate, yet they're also more challenging. Um, so we try to run these A/B tests in a space. Um, again, these are still proxy measures for how much they're learning. The hypothesis is if we're giving them harder things and they're staying more motivated, then they're learning better. Um, and then we have a whole other efficacy team in the company that does at a much slower scale, you know, like on a six to 12 month cycle, you know, these larger scale studies to understand where, uh, where our users fall, kind of how, how they compare to like a university classroom setting. Um, and that stuff is published over at duolingo.com slash efficacy. Um, but those are not 
the scale of those studies are not the kinds of things you can A-B test or, you know, do in a few weeks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really fascinating, thinking about the different, the kind of like different levels of metrics, like automatic or quick to evaluate ones so that you could iterate your model with, then like the user facing A-B tests, and then these like longer term ones. Yeah. Yeah. So that certainly, at least from like a, um, like, you know, the cartoon picture of like, uh, here's the benchmark, this is what I'm going to work on. That certainly seems to be a, a difference in this kind of real world setting. Like looking back, what other kind of like differences in this like real world machine learning setting have you noticed compared to say, when you were doing your PhD or if you weren't in that setting? Well, when I was doing my PhD, uh, I, I was still very interested in these human factors. Uh, so that's what attracted me to active learning and kind of doing user studies with active learning to begin with. So in that sense, it's not too different. I think, I think some of it is scale and some of it is the amount of control you have over the environment. Um, there are certain kinds of studies you can do in a, like a laboratory setting uh, that you can control better and ask more precise questions, but you sacrifice scale and volume. And then it, with something like Duolingo, we've got, sure, half a billion users, but the signal we can get from them is <laughs> is you know pretty noisy and, and it's pretty specific. Um, mm -hmm. So th that's one of the interesting sort of trade-offs. Yeah, another thing that I noticed, I, I was watching one of your talks and... I saw that um, you developed the shared task and it was kind of a different variation on translation where mm. instead of just translating one thing, you actually want to translate the kind of like largest possible set of good translations. And that, that was like a, an example of like, you might not come across that problem unless you're like faced with something concrete in the real world. But then like once you identify that problem, that actually seems like an interesting Thing to study just from a research perspective like how do we generate a lot of good translations instead of just one good translation yeah exactly it's it's been one of my goals at duolingo because we have such rich data and such interesting problems i think but they're not benchmark problems they're not things that anybody else it's they're not things that are even really on anybody's radar and we're still a we're still a startup and um the AI group is is relatively small compared to you know other big tech companies. So we don't have the resources to really dig into some of these problems that could be transformational to our business. So the strategy we've taken is, yeah, every two to three years, we want to do one of these shared tasks where we identify something that we think is cool, we think is new and would make a, a contribution to the broader research community. And then we can throw it out there and then also kind of outsource or crowdsource uh, some initial approaches to solving those problems. Uh, and then by the time we do get around to trying to build an internal system. So the, the what we call staple, uh, simultaneous translation and paraphrase for education, I think was the acronym uh, that you just mentioned, was born out of a real problem where a lot of the exercises in Duolingo are translation-based. So let's say I'm an English speaker learning French. I'll get a prompt in English, and then I have to translate that into French. Um, but there might be a thousand different correct translations for this particular prompt. And a typical machine learning benchmark data set, or, sorry, machine translation benchmark data set will be input prompt, output prompt. That is the best translation. Mm -hmm. um, but in our case, we want to accept anything that's arguably correct or viable you know so maybe there's a synonym substitution maybe there's uh, a, a active passive voice switch um, that that might be deemed correct um, or there's some ambiguity in the in the gender of the thing um, so we wanted to build some internal tooling to speed up the the generation of these sets of accepted translations um, but, and, but it was also a novel problem that nobody was really working on to our knowledge. Um, I, I, I was at a 
I was giving a talk at a conference where Colin Cherry uh, from Google was also speaking, and we got to talking about this, uh, and he was the one who actually encouraged us to do a shared task on this, um, because it's something we'd been kicking around. Um, So yeah, we did it. And uh, a few years before that, we did one on kind of second language acquisition modeling, you know, cognitive modeling, which is very similar to the what we ultimately built into BirdBrain. And who knows in another year or two, uh, what we'll do next. Yeah, cool. And then in terms of uh, generative models, this is like something I think a lot about is the um, text generation models. Uh, but we also have now like, you know, text to speech. And especially on the text generation side, there's been rapid progress. Now we have things like GPT-3. Have these kind of recent advances changed the way, like opened up new possibilities or for the way that you think about integrating machine learning? I could imagine like, for instance, maybe with a powerful generative model, you could start having um, a lot more example phrases or something, or maybe you could use this for grading somehow. Yeah, absolutely. We're, um, we have been experimenting with using these, you know, large pre-trained language models for generation. For example, in the Duolingo English test, uh, I mentioned before, it's a computer adaptive test that uses AI and NLP end to end really to like to generate to semi-automatically generate test items uh to automatically grade those test items to adaptively administer those items uh synthesize all those results into an overall score um and then and then also using some you know biometrics and things to ensure the integrity and the security of the test uh we've been using some of these large language models to semi-automatically generate reading comprehension passages, for example, uh, Mm -hmm. in that test. And we've been piloting um, those. Um, There's a lot of, still a lot of human effort that has to go into fairness and bias review of what's generated uh, GPT-3. Yeah, it can generate some really off-the-wall things ranging from, you know, characters with anger issues um, that we have to manually filter out. And also there's lots of grammatical mistakes. We have to copy edit everything. Um, So it's still unclear like whether that is a more efficient process than hiring an army of contractors uh, or or internal experts to generate the items. But but it is something that we're looking into. Um, uh, we've We've also explored some of these large language models for grammatical error correction. So you can just seed it with some examples of here. here's a poorly formed sentence in the language and here's a correct form. Uh, here's a well-formed sentence in the language uh, and give three or four examples of that and then you know, give them something that a real learner of Duolingo has typed in and then automatically create it. And it, and it works surprisingly well. In practice, we ended up using that to build an MVP uh, for user studies, and then we ended up building our own grammatical error correction systems um, to ultimately replace it uh, because the off-the-shelf solutions weren't quite good enough, but they were good enough to like get things started and do a proof of concept and do user studies. Maybe if we like zoomed out and had just like a fun, uh, yeah, just like a fun question is like how difficult is the problem of if you wanted to create like an artificial tutor that's as good as a human, like how difficult of that problem is that problem? Is it one of these like AI complete problems? Do you think you probably have a pretty good intuition for that after, you know, thinking about these things for so long? Yeah, that's a pretty hard problem. Um, but what I will say is we, the approach that, we've taken a Duolingo so far is actually trying to take inspiration from good teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, so not necessarily to replace good teachers, but most of the people in the world who want to learn a language just don't have access to, uh, you know, a, a good teacher or classroom to learn that language. So uh, I claim a good teacher has three properties. One is that they know the content really well. Um, Two is that they know how to make that content exciting and engaging. 
And three is that they know how to get inside your head. So based on their interactions with you, they have a mental model of where you're at. And so they can engage you with the right material at the right time. Um, so we've kind of patterned our AI research programs at Duolingo around those three things. So trying to automatically generate uh, content or the quality control of the content, uh, you know, tools for for understanding the languages that we're trying to teach um, so we can teach it better. Uh, machine learning applications to make them more fun and engaging and exciting. Um, a good example of this is you, you just mentioned text-to-speech a few minutes ago. We are building, we've got this cast of characters. Duolingo wants to be the Sesame Street of language learning. And so we've got the, all these different characters and we're giving them, after we gave them a look and a personality, now they each have a voice, you know, so we're using um, text-to-speech to give, you know, custom voices to each of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're starting with the most popular languages that people learn, such as English, French, Spanish, Italian, German, Portuguese, Japanese. Um, but as we're collecting uh, voice actor data for all these different languages, we can also then try to build language agnostic acoustic models uh, to bootstrap text-to-speech for, you know, Farsi and Swahili and Dutch and High Valyrian and... Uh, <laughs> Esperanto. Um, and then and then finally, the, the personalization sorts of things that uh, we've been talking about. So um, using machine learning to, to fine tune and, and tailor the exercises directly to you. Um, I think advances in all three of those fronts will get us closer and closer to a human-like tutor experience. Um, but I, I have zero faith that there's this one end to end system to rule them all that can do all of those things. So our, our approach mm -hmm. has been to sort of decompose, uh, take inspiration from really good teachers and then decompose, um, the problem into what they do well, and then focus on technologies that can, uh, do each of those things well. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like in addition to the text speech in the opposite direction, the speech recognition could be could be useful too. Because like one thing, it's really useful to have a native speaker around to to actually like try out speaking some text, and they tell you whether it's you know wrong or right. Um, so it seems like machine learning could help with that potentially as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so like on this podcast, some people we were talking before about how like you know, some people work on kind of like very similar things to their PhD. Some people move on to other areas. And I always like to get a sense of like, if you look back and do some reflection, like what are kind of like the key things that uh, kind of stayed with you from your PhD? Was it about kind of like learning the process of research? Was it kind of like these idea, like the technical ideas? Maybe a difficult question, but yeah, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's a very difficult question. My, I, I think what I was fascinated with when I first started doing machine learning research was the human side of the equation. <laughs> uh, you know, the the kind of the interaction between um, a human oracle and a machine learner, uh, and then more recently the opposite. You know, a machine oracle and a human learner, and ways that you can create interfaces and languages for communication in both directions to solve a problem together, sort of like collaborative uh, human hybrid machine learning of a sort. So that started, so that was manifested, you know, as active learning while I was doing my PhD and it's taken other forms since then. Um, but I think that I'm, I've always been fundamentally fascinated with research solutions to real problems that involve how humans use machines and interact with them. Just, you know, because of time, we should probably move to the, the last two questions that I always ask on the thesis review. All right. Um, so the first, <laughs> the first is about objective functions. 
So um, if you could think back to your PhD again, what would you say was your objective function that was guiding your research or your uh, kind of just like activities as a PhD student? And do you think that your objective function nowadays is different? So do you mean my personal objective function, you know, that I, I was trying to optimize versus the, the models I was building? <laughs> Uh, your personal objective function, yeah, right, yeah. I thought I thought that's what you meant. Um, well, I mean, academia trains us to be, you know, the the objective function is publishing, right? So, uh, papers and citations and stuff. Uh, so, I guess when I was um, a grad student and even as a postdoc, I was kind of focused on, okay, well, what what would make an interesting paper. Um, and, but I, I think it w- I was always still interested in the intersection between that and what it, I think is just an interesting problem or something that nobody has been looking into that much. Today, you know, I, I, I've been in a startup for almost a decade. That's not the best place to be publishing papers, although we have continued to publish papers, um, perhaps more so than your typical startup, but not nearly as much as a, as a larger research powerhouse. I, I'm really more motivated by, I kind of remember when I first joined Duolingo and I ran my first A-B test and like we ran it for like two weeks and there were like 3 million people <laughs> and there were, and, and the effect size was such that like there were tens of thousands of more people whose lives were arguably improved by this thing that mm-hmm. I did. Um, and, uh, you know, those numbers are orders of magnitude larger today. But I think I kind of got the bug and I, I was okay letting go of, you know, numbers of publications and citations uh, after that. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually funny that you asked for the distinction between the objective function of the models and your own objective function. Because going back to what you said earlier in the conversation, it's like actually... With these machine learning models currently, your tr- the the true objective function you're trying to optimize with those is learning, and right maybe and like from a personal perspective, that's also what you want to do is like help people out in their learning journey. <laughs> yeah, and also learn myself like that. That <laughs> I actually maybe if I had to go back and re answer your question, yeah, my my objective function was was to learn myself and to have that learning make an impact and in that sense i don't think it's changed as a byproduct of learning stuff in grad school and as a postdoc you know the 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 output of that were papers and ultimately citations and today the output of that are software systems that are used by lots and lots of people um but at the core of it it's still just learning And then the last question is about advice. So if you could think back uh, and come up with one piece of advice for a new researcher that's just getting started and to make it easier, um, it could just be a useful heuristic, like, I don't know, go to sleep at a consistent time or something, (laughs) or it could be a grand piece of uh, philosophical advice, um, your choice. So just one piece of advice for a new researcher. Well, I've got, I'll say two. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them I got from my PhD advisor after my, I don't know if it was my first failed experiment, but it was like pretty early in my career. um, And I was writing it up. I think it was for a workshop paper. And I said, unfortunately, blah, blah, blah. Like the way I phrased it in the paper was something about like this, this result was a disappointment. And then he looked at me and he was like, it's rather unscientific to say we're disappointed with reality. So, so that's one piece of advice. Like out of all the things that he said to me during my, while I was under his charge, that's the thing that sticks with me the most. So I would encourage Mm -hmm. everybody to like reflect on that. And then the other thing is, uh, particularly with machine learning, I, I think it's more important to be focused on problems and applications than it is methods because methods are, I mean, problems and applications have fads that come and go too in the literature, but 
um, but but methods in particular come and go. But if you stay focused on like real problems and what those outcomes and objectives are, um, I th- I think that's a better north star. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that actually. I mean, there's probably been plenty of examples of this on the podcast, but one that always sticks with me is actually when I was talking with Chelsea Finn and her PhD thesis was about meta learning, which on its face might seem very like abstract in general. But then like when we were talking about the backstory of it, it was all kind of in the name of getting this like robot manipulation task to work, like through the concrete task, you like end up the inv- inventing the things that are necessary for it. And then those might actually generalize to other settings but it's like always like grounded in something concrete so yep very cool yeah okay well yeah thanks this has been really fun and um i think this like the general area of machine learning for education is is really exciting so it was it was fun talking about how you got started your work in active learning and now your work uh helping humans learn better so (laughs) thanks for coming on the thesis review yeah thanks for having me sean it's been a pleasure 